0: Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined again by Philip Bump. He is a correspondent for The Washington Post based in New York, and he's the author of the weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart, and the book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, We actually have a separate conversation with Philip about that book. I loved having that conversation. I've heard from a lot of you that you enjoyed hearing it as well. So if you haven't had a chance to listen, that's from a few episodes back. Again, Philip's new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom, and the Future of Power in America. But we're going to talk about some different topics with Philip today. So Philip, welcome, and thank you for passing judgment with us. Of course. Thanks for having me back. So the big news right now is the debt ceiling, and I feel kind of uneducated as to exactly what this means. I feel like we keep hearing we're about to hit the debt ceiling and it sounds dire, but oftentimes nothing particularly catastrophic happens. Could you begin by just explaining what is the debt ceiling and then we'll move into kind of why should we be concerned about it? How does it impact the everyday person?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean this is a it's a confusing sort of weird concept that's unique to the United States government. So people often assume that when we talk about this debt limit, that we're, we're what we're talking about is the amount of money that the United States government is allowed to spend to pay its bills. That's not really the case. The amount of money that the United States government spends to pay its bills is dictated by Congress. Congress approves how much money the United States can spend on things through appropriations process. And so what this is, is there are existing obligations that the United States needs to fulfill. But often because we operate at a deficit in most years, the United States government needs to issue debt in order to be able to pay those bills. And so this is basically the upper cap of how much debt can be issued in order to pay the existing bills we have. You can think of it a little bit like Let's say that you are a young person, as I once was, who spends more money than he actually has or has more obligations than he can actually pay for. And you go to your parents and say, hey, can you pay these bills for me? I'm coming up a little dry. And your parents say, fine, but we're only going to pay $500 worth of the bills. And then you go back and you're like, well, actually, you know, I have a couple more bills here. And parents are like, OK, fine. But it's $540. That's as much as we're paying in total to cover you here. And you keep going back and your parents keep very generously extending it you have already made the obligations. Your parents are simply uh, increasing the amount that they are willing to cover for you. And that really is, you know, it's sort of abstract, broadly inapplicable household terms, how the debt ceiling works. The debt limit as it stands now is basically at the same level as the amount of debt the United States has accrued, some $31 trillion. And in order to issue more debt, it has to actually be raised. And that is the point of contention at this moment.
0: Philip, I love how you explained it in a way that people can understand. I think this is why people follow your analysis on the Washington Post, because we get it. We now understand what it means to have a debt ceiling and to blow past that debt ceiling. So obviously there's a lot of news right now concerning the debt ceiling. So we're recording this episode late the week of January 15th. Can you tell us where things stand right now in terms of the negotiations and what seems likely to happen in the short term?
1: Yeah. So essentially what happened until about 2011 is that the United States would accrue more debt until it hit the ceiling and then the ceiling would be raised and then they would accrue more debt and then the ceiling would be raised and they'd accrue more debt and the ceiling would be raised. And the reason the ceiling was always raised is not because everyone was happy about it and they just wanted to spend money, although Congress has never been shy about spending money. It was instead because if you don't raise the debt limit, then you're not going to be able to obtain the money that you need in order to pay your obligations. And that risks what everyone likes to call the full faith and credit of the United States, but essentially means the United States would not be seen as a country that actually pays its obligations, uh, which hurts the United States both politically and economically. What happened then is in 2011, Republicans in the House first started flirting with the idea that this was a really strong point of leverage, that if you were able to convince the administration that you'd be willing to let the United States default on its obligations in that way, you might be able to really extract some real concessions from the administration. At the time, 2011, Barack Obama was president, of Democrat. Republicans just regained the House uh, in the 2010 midterm elections. And very quickly, they demonstrated, yes, they were willing to let this happen. And so ever since then, it has been this constant back and forth of trying to figure out what happens with the debt limit. For much of the time since 2011, the debt limit was just suspended entirely. Democrats do not have a demonstrated willingness to allow the United States to default on its debt. Uh, and so during the Trump years in particular, they just simply suspended the debt limit entirely, which of course they can do. There's no reason that we have to have a debt limit. It's just something that exists by law. So now we are back into a 2011 type situation in which there's a Democrat in the White House, there are Republicans controlling the House, and Republicans see this as a point of leverage. And so we are now currently at the $31.4 trillion ceiling that is imposed by the debt limit, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the Treasury Department is going to do what is the now familiar term extraordinary measures to to be able to pay our bills. In the meantime, they're just sort of accounting tricks that are done. Uh, No longer extraordinary because we tend to do them quite regularly because these fights keep coming up. But we only have a certain period of time before the ceiling needs to be raised until the United States will not be able to actually pay its obligations. And now we're in a very familiar pattern of political negotiation which has just begun, as we speak, to try and figure out what sorts of concessions might be able to be drawn out, if any, in order to get the debt ceiling raised.
0: Philip, could you walk us through what happens to the everyday person? I don't know who the everyday person is, but what happens to us if The debt ceiling isn't raised. I mean, what does it mean for my daily life, your daily life, the daily lives of the people who are listening? Will we feel that impact?
1: No, it's a, it's a good question. You know, this is sort of a broad question about the extent to which the machinations of the federal government affect us on a day to day basis. I, I'm, I'm not an economist. It's hard for me to be able to articulate the specific trickle down effects that we might see here. But obviously, the fact that the United States is known as being a country which is good on its obligations helps make sure that we have things like interest rates that are lower than they might otherwise be when we're talking about how the United States conducts its economic activity. We have already seen a large amount of economic instability over the course of the past three years, given the coronavirus pandemic. And I think one of the general concerns we might worry about is that there would be a potentially destabilizing effect that might even be hard to measure, that it may be hard even for people who very closely track these things to anticipate the ways in which shaking this particular element of the American economic system might similarly ripple throughout the rest of the economy. Uh, Again, I can't simply sit here and say, in part because these sorts of nuances are are not my area of expertise. I can't sit here and say if this happens, all of a sudden you're going to be paying 45 times as much for carrots, right? Like I I don't know what that outcome is necessarily, but it is the case certainly that economists are concerned, particularly given the shakiness of the economy, that by raising this specter at this point in time, much less seeing it through, could have serious ramifications.
0: And those ramifications will play out based on what you're saying, on both an international and domestic stage, in the sense that our lack of stability really will have geopolitical impacts as well in terms of our standing with the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's important to remember, too, the United States is in a very robust economic competition, particularly at the moment, from you know, the rise of, of China as an economic power. There's been a lot of uh, uh, brouhaha over the course of the last decade about the extent to which, or, or the duration at which the United States dollar will be considered the default currency of, of the economic world, of the financial world. You know, things like this threaten that. Obviously, the United States has been a place of much more uncertainty in the past, <laughs> you know, two years and 13 days in particular um, than it once was, saying this on January 19th, as you pointed out, but adding an element of economic instability and uncertainty, I think, really poses the threat of doing significant long-term damage to the United States simply because, at least on that point, the American economy and American economic strength was seen as unassailable, even if American democracy itself seemed a little wobbly. And
0: last question on the debt limit, in part just because it's, I think, Very anxiety producing. And we have a lot of other things to talk about, which is do you have a prediction for what happens in the short term? It does feel that the GOP has seized on this as a political issue, obviously, but it has very real, very damaging implications, as I understand it, for people individually, for the country as a whole, and for us on the world stage. So is this a matter of? trying to hold Democrats hostage while they are, while the GOP is saying we're not going to raise the debt limit, we're not going to raise the debt limit? Is it just a matter of who's going to blink first? Is there something we should be looking to in the next few
1: weeks? I I think there are two motivations at play here for Republicans in the House. And, And remember, you know, Republicans control Congress and the white house in 2017 and we didn't see these same sorts of debates in the same way so you know there certainly is an element of, of politics here and i think one of the things we're going to see over the short term is that this is used or has in the past been used and already we're starting to see it be used as a way to say oh the government spends too much money and you know it is certainly the case that the government spends more than it takes in regularly that we can continue to amass debt because of our annual deficits It is not, however, the case that by finagling the debt limit or holding the debt limit where it is that we will reduce spending. Spending is separate from the debt limit. The spending is what prompts the debt limit to have to be increased. Uh, So Republican allegations that The debt limit only needs to be increased because we have spent too much money. That's not really true. You know, Congress has actually done the spending already. The debt limit is a response to that. Uh, So, you know, this is this is not simply a giving the Biden administration a blank check. It is the Biden administration trying to figure out how to pay for the check that Congress has already written. So we'll see some of that rhetoric, but it really is, you know, this is a point of very significant leverage and this is politics. Uh, and this is a political era in which that leverage is more important to some actors than is the United States standing on this issue and its credibility on economics. Uh, and so that leverage is going to be exercised. You know, how that's resolved that or not in the past, we have not actually experienced a situation in which the government has not been able to pay for its obligations. I would be surprised if we do get to that point, but I've been surprised a lot over the course of the past seven years.
0: Philip, now let's just completely change topics. I'm so glad we had that conversation about the debt ceiling. It's been in the news and I think it's important to understand exactly what's happening. And I want to talk about another big topic in the news that I know you've been covering. And that's the issue of these classified documents and current and former presidents. So the headline is, of course, that classified documents were found at the home of the former president, President Trump, and classified documents were found at the former office and current home of the current president and former vice president, Joe Biden. And that, I specifically said it that way because that headline makes it sound like, wow, these stories are really similar. I wrote a quick piece where I said, you know, lawyers dwell on small details, and this case is all about going past the headline. Now, could you help us do that by first talking about what's the biggest difference between these two cases? Obviously, when President Biden was Vice President Biden, he was able to have possession and look at classified documents. The same thing was true for former President Trump when he was president. And in both cases, neither one of them should have had classified documents at their homes or offices. But there's lots of differences. In your mind, what's the one key difference?
1: Yeah. And just to add to the point you just made, we also don't know that these documents are currently classified. These are uh, described as documents with classified markings. They may have been declassified, uh, either through the formal process that's used to do so or through some other mechanism. But that is important for the reasons that I'm about to describe. The, the, The main difference between the situations with Trump and Biden isn't the documents themselves, but rather the context behind the way in which those documents... Were discovered and the government's efforts to obtain them. So, the Biden documents, uh, according to a story that was produced by his attorneys and that has been backed up by the White House, and so that's an important caveat. You know, this is this is their articulation of what happened. So, you know, take that with grains of salt. Uh, they uncovered some documents as they're cleaning out an office. These documents were in a locked closet at an office that he had at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, And then they continued to do additional searches to make sure there weren't other documents and they found an envelope with several documents in a garage at Biden's house. That is the the story about the Biden documents. The Trump story is much longer and more detailed. uh, And I won't give the long and detailed version unless you really want to hear it at this point in time. But the upshot is that Trump, after leaving the White House, took A number of documents, including ones with classification markings, uh, back to Mar a Lago. That the National Archives was very quickly aware that he had documents that really are presidential records and government documents and asked that he return them. That he returned a cache of documents in January 2021 that was both intermingling documents with classification markings and normal documents and also pretty obviously incomplete in terms of what the National Archives was seeking. The archives went to the Justice Department and said, hey, you might want to look into this. Justice Department launched an investigation. They talked to people that worked in Mar-a-Lago, uh, that worked for Donald Trump. They very quickly discovered there were other documents. They issued as part of that investigation a subpoena saying any document you have with classification markings, whether or not it's classified, you need to give to us. Uh, in June of 2021, an attorney for Donald Trump turned over a bunch of documents, signed an affidavit, saying, this is everything that we have responsible for the subpoena. In other words, that is everything that has classified uh, markings. Then very quickly, upon further investigation and talking to more people, the Justice Department determined that was not true, that there were more documents in Mar-a-Lago. That's when they did the search in August of 2021, found more than 100 documents that had classification markings, including uh, several dozen that were in Donald Trump's private office, uh, where he had a lot of guests uh, and you know, tweeted about meeting with various people over the course of his time. And at that point in time, they felt more confident that they had secured all the documents. That is very different (laughs) than what happened with Joe Biden. Donald Trump very clearly had documents he did not want to have to give back, some of which had classification markings. An attorney for him misrepresented that there were no longer any such documents at Mar-a-Lago and the FBI discovered they were. And though in broad strokes, when you look in the Washington Post has looked at the times at which people have faced criminal charges for their handling classified documents, it has not been times when they have had a couple that they've uncovered at their house and turned them over. It has instead been when there are a lot of documents that they have not wanted to uh, uh, return to the government or that the government has had to sort of uh, uh, obtain through their own uh, methodology. And that I think is a key distinction. I-, I promised that wasn't gonna be a long detailed explanation than it was. So I apologize. I, I misled your your listeners and you.
0: I feel deeply misled. We need the details, right? I mean, as we said in the beginning, we need to go past the headline. And so the details are really important here. And to pick up on the last point that you just said in terms of when charges occur and when they don't, the big difference, what I hear you saying is that when it comes to at least the facts that we know so far with respect to President Biden, you don't have criminal intent. For criminal charges, and I've looked at these statutes. I've looked at the Presidential Records Act and the Espionage Act, you need to have some sort of knowledge or willfulness when it comes to knowing that you're taking the classified documents, knowing you're putting them somewhere where they shouldn't be, knowing that you're engaging in behavior that you shouldn't be engaging in. And that, at this point, is just missing with respect to the story about, President Biden, but it's not with respect to right. former President Trump. And Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, but if we think about this in terms of people who still go to libraries and take out library books, mm-hmm. when it comes to President Biden, it seems to me what we have is that he checked out a bunch of library books. He thought he returned them. He found some that he never returned. He called the library immediately. He said, I'm going to bring these books back and I'm going to search the rest of my house to see if there are any more library books that I failed to return. Very different story when it comes to former President Trump, where it looks like he checked out library books, but also maybe took some books that the library doesn't allow you to ever check out, that the library called him and said, we're missing some really important books here, that he failed to respond. He ultimately brought back some of the books. Then he said, no, you have everything. The library thought, no, I don't think we do. Ultimately, the library has to come in and say, we're going to search your house. We really want those books. That seems to me to be so very different. And again, what's missing is that lack of criminal knowledge or intent. And then, Philip, there's also the difference in the sense that one of these people, President Biden, if there was criminal activity, as I understand it, he would be immune from indictment because we have that Department of Justice memo right. that says you don't indict a sitting president.
1: I think you are right in both broad strokes and specifics with you know a couple of qualifiers. The first is, again, the Biden presentation come from the Biden camp. Uh, and I think that's an important caveat. I don't have any reason to suspect that the story is more intricate than the way that you articulated it or the way that they articulate it. Uh, but still, that, that's an important qualifier. Uh, I think you're also right about this issue of whether or not Donald Trump was trying to keep these documents for himself. And you know, I I don't want to editorialize too much, but it seems pretty obvious that he had a set of documents that he liked to have. There are reports that he was showing documents to people, not necessarily classified documents, but for example, the letters uh, that he had exchanged with Kim Jong-un, that he had uh, shown those to people. He liked to have those sorts of mementos and and, uh, 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 souvenirs from the time of his presidency, even though those were federal documents. Uh, And I think that that broad pattern of behavior for Trump helps explain why he had, in particular, that clutch of documents that were found in his desk or in his office at Mar-a-Lago, that he had these things that he liked to keep as, as souvenirs and potentially even to show to people. Uh, and that's, you know, again, this was classified documents and a bunch of other documents uh, that were that were considered government property. Um, you're right that I, I don't think there's any real prospect of Joe Biden facing criminal charges, uh, in part because we don't the two scenarios simply aren't commensurate as we understand them at, the, at this point in time uh and that there doesn't appear to be any actual deliberate effort by joe biden to have either obtained these documents or try and hid the to hide the documents you know so i, I don't even know that the the much discussed over the course of 2017 to 2021 uh determination of the department of justice that sitting president can't face indictment I, i'm not even sure that's you know, sort of on the table at this point, uh, just because I don't think that this is, you know, barring some new revelation that that would even happen were Joe Biden not sitting president of the United States.
0: Absolutely. I think you don't even get there. You don't need to get to the point of, well, we would think about an indictment, but that office of legal counsel memo. Now, just to belabor the point for a moment, Mm -hmm. there are other differences here, It's the number of documents. And I think the reporting indicates what's actually in those documents because obviously there's different types of classified documents. You correctly pointed out that we don't know for sure when it comes to President Biden, that those documents with the classified markings weren't declassified. Right now, the reporting is they had classified markings. I'm just been operating under the assumption that they are in fact classified. But could you walk us through for a moment, there's a huge difference, again, in volume and potentially in type. Not all classified documents are the same.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I can't speak to the extent to which there may be different criminal, you know, different questions of criminality, depending on the type of document. But yeah, what, what was uncovered in the search at mar lago were classified documents that were marked as, even if they, you know, had been subsequently declassified, that are marked as being, you know, top secret, being top secret, uh, uh, secure compartmentalized information uh, that be being code word uh, uh, material, meaning very specific and very high levels of protection under the classification system. Uh, there have been, as I recall, there was at least one document that was top secret that was included in those uh, uh, recovered from the one of the Biden properties. Uh, but the number of documents that were uncovered at Mar-a-Lago, and this is setting aside the documents that had already been returned in January, the documents that had been turned over in June, just Mar-a-Lago, this third cache, this third set of documents that the federal government obtained after having done this search itself included more than 100 documents, a number of them, including... Uh, The ones that uh, were found in his office were at very, very high levels of classification, suggesting very, very secure documents. There are very real questions, of course, about the extent to which the United States government uses the classification system as a way to protect material that doesn't necessarily need to be protected. There are a lot of criticisms of the classification processes as, as leading to over classification of documents. But that said, these are not run of the mill, you know, <laughs> confidential documents that detail, you know, salaries and whatever, you know, who who knows what sorts of low level classification things might exist out there. These are certainly in the case of Donald Trump, a large number of documents, at very, very top tier uh, classifications, uh, which suggest that they are material that are the sorts of things that you would least want to have sitting around in a private event space in Florida.
0: Philip, I think that's so helpful to have really taken apart all of the ways in which these stories are different. And I think we covered legally why that makes these two cases so different politically. How much do you think the fact that that headline has similar words Former Uh President Trump, current President Biden, classified documents, found at their homes. How much will that affect what we see in terms of investigations into the Biden administration? We now know we have a GOP-dominated house. Mm -hmm. Do you think that means that the GOP will spend more time investigating President Biden when it comes to classified documents or less because they don't want to draw attention to the other real and I think much more troubling uh, discovery of classified documents at former President Trump's residence.
1: Yeah, I think that we've already seen indications from particularly from the incoming House Oversight Chairman uh, James Comer. We've seen indications that they plan to use this as a point of leverage to sort of try and bolster this this Long faltering narrative that Joe Biden is the head of this family of crooks um, that they have been they've been trying to promulgate for some time now. Uh, we've already seen indications that that's how they intend to try and use this story. Uh, I don't think that there's going to be anything <laughs> which they're going to, you know. I mean, look, the 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 political right is already very. Uh, robustly tried to equate these things and, in fact, to present Joe Biden's situation as far worse for a variety of reasons. Trump himself has tried to do that. Uh, So I don't think they're going to pay any political costs within the party uh, for treating this as something more serious than than Donald Trump. I think the real problem, the real challenge is uh, for everyone else is for the media and for casual observers not to do the same sort of equivalence. The, the two the two situations are not equivalent and it's not hard to see why they're not equivalent. Uh, I think there is to some extent a desire among a lot of people, particularly in the media, to sort of say, okay, well, we got to take this seriously too because it's from Biden. And of course we do. We need to figure out what the, the contours of the story are and and, and whether the White House's presentation is accurate, uh, but it is not as we currently understood it. These are not commensurate situations; they simply aren't. And to present them as commensurate is to do a disservice. Uh, and to uh, to make it seem as though what Donald Trump did is not far more significant in scale. And if we do that as the media, then that also is the understanding that the public takes away from it. And I realize that the media gets a lot of criticism for being heavily focused on Donald Trump and what he does. And I would argue that that is to a large extent because Donald Trump is a unique character in American politics and does things that deserve more scrutiny. Um, But the response to that cannot be to simply say, well, these things are in very loose terms, sort of similar. And so we need to treat them uh, with the same amount of attention and uh, skepticism. Uh, And I just think that's the wrong approach. And I I think it's a fundamentally dishonest approach.
0: I think we fundamentally agree on that point. And I feel like this is the moment where we say, but her emails, because it's the same kind of problem, this false equivalency uh, between two different candidates and two very, very different courses of conduct. Uh And Philip, one more thing before we go, you recently wrote about January 6th and basically the roads not taken. And, We've all now lived through the hearings of January 6th, the report that came out, but I think your article zeroes in on something really important, which is that there were warning signs. This was preventable. Could you talk to us a little bit more about how we could have averted what happened and what those warning signs were?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that once Trump put out that tweet in December 19th saying that things are going to be wild to call people to January to be there on January 6th and had that big speech that morning. You know, the die was essentially cast. But one thing that I've been fascinated about over the course of and basically since the event itself is at what point in time was the decision made that they were going to take people from the White House and deliberately push them toward the Capitol? Uh, and we'd heard reports from people who were uh, involved in the organizing of the event uh, that suggested that they were surprised when Donald Trump had actually called to do that, that there had been agreement that this wasn't going to happen. And so once all of the testimony was released by the January 6th committee, I really dug into it to try and figure out, OK, what actually happened? And, and what I discovered is that there was really never any question about pushing people to the Capitol, that it was always sort of assumed that there would be a march and that there was this outside pressure from the Park Service, for example, which said, hey, you don't have a permit to do this. We're not going to give you a permit to go to the to go to the Capitol. You're not allowed to do this, uh, which apparently inspired some of the organizers to at least publicly say, OK, there's you know, we're not going to actually have a formal march. Uh, but there was also internal questions. The events of January 5th and 6th, you'll remember, were sort of an amalgam of a bunch of different groups coming together. There are different plans that were sort of merged into into one set of activities. Uh, There was the speech by women that was organized by Women for Trump that was going to happen outside the White House. But then there was also supposed to be a rally on Capitol Hill that was led by Ali Alexander from Stop the Steal and Alex Jones and, and a, a much more fringe group of people. And so there were concerns within the organizers of the, the speech of the ellipse and within the administration about pushing people to the Capitol, understanding that that's where the fringe element was going to be. But those concerns, if you look at the transcripts, apparently were never really conveyed to Donald Trump. There's never any indication that was presented to them. Hey, we are ourselves beyond what the feds, what law enforcement's hearing about the dangers here, we are ourselves wary of this, that never trickled up. And therefore there was never any effort really significantly to try and keep a march from happening.
0: So interesting, based on everything we heard. And when I first saw this on TV, I remember being very anxious that day and thinking something would happen, but not along the lines of what we saw. And based on your explanation, based on other things we've heard from the committee, I think we should have expected it and we should have tried to avert it. And there were so many failures along the way. Now, Philip, maybe this is an unfair question. Obviously, the January 6th committee has completed its work. This is now a question that is pending with the department of justice as to whether or not there will be more indictments forthcoming. Um, do you have any predictions?
1: I think that one of the missing components of the response to January 6th has been that beyond the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, no organizers have faced repercussions. Uh, obviously we understand that there's a special counsel in place who's considering this. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, <laughs> we've all seen uh, a lot of expectations for special counsel uh, yes. activity that have not necessarily borne fruit of the course of the past five years. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that we can expect that people who were not necessarily Donald Trump, but, you know, for example, John Eastman uh, might potentially face charges, that there was a real effort to orchestrate and a means of having Donald Trump preserve power, even beyond simply encouraging people to go and you know, participate in what ended up being the violent mob at the Capitol. Uh, I think we can expect some uh, indictments along those lines. Uh, my guess is, though, that there will not be anyone who is facing additional indictment who hasn't already been charged uh, for having been responsible solely for what occurred at the Capitol that day.
0: I think you're right. We need to look to uh, John Eastman, who, of course, is the former dean of Chapman Law School and was somebody right. who acted as a counsel to former President Trump and really provided that roadmap for trying to instigate that scheme of fake electors. And so obviously that's right. something we'll watch. Um, Philip Bump, we covered so much ground here. We talked about the debt ceiling. We talked about classified documents. We talked about the future of demographics in the United States and what Florida means for the future of our country. And we ended with January 6th. We've, again, covered a lot of territory. Philip Bump of The Washington Post, author of the weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart, and the book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in america thank you so much for your time again
1: of course my pleasure
0: you can find philip on social media at p bump you can also find me across social media at levinson jessica please of course subscribe rate and review and we wish everybody a great day